day. Well, we are in the midst of a a year-long discipleship journey, and over the past few weeks we've been talking specifically about what it means to follow Jesus. Last week we focused on what? The glory of, come on guys, the glory of God, thank you. Last week we focused on the glory of God, right? We talked about how that ought to be the focus of our lives. We said, soli deo gloria, right? That our lives should be lived uh, for the glory of God alone. It's all about God's glory. Now let me say this, when we say we follow Jesus, uh, we need to take on Jesus' cause, right? Which is to glorify God with our lives. Now hear me today, we cannot say we follow Jesus if we don't go where he leads. We cannot say we follow Jesus if we don't do what he says to do. And so today, I want to focus on what I think is one of the biggest hindrances to following the call of God on your life, to following Jesus with your life, and it's this. It's the fear of man. If you have your note sheets, I want to encourage you to follow along today. Take some notes, write down some thoughts, encourage you to jot down what God is speaking to you uh, this morning. Now, it's amazing that most of the issues that are common to humanity will appear either in the Garden of Eden or in the story of Exodus, in the time when the people of God were wandering in the wilderness. And the fear of man is one of those problems that emerges most clearly in the context of the Exodus. God's chosen people are called to take the promised land. And then there's this curious passage in the midst of all of it where they say, well, we can't take the land because what? There are giants in the land. And the idea of fear here is simply this. Who or what controls your life? Who or what controls the decisions of your life? Will it be the word of God? In their case, will it be the word of the one who has just delivered you miraculously from slavery in Egypt? Or will it be those who are living in the land who seem to be especially strong? Whose words and whose eyes will control your life? That seems to be the beginning of this theme in Scripture of the fear of man. But what is the fear of man and why is it so dangerous? That's what I want to talk about today. And how can we overcome it in our lives? Because I believe, again, it's one of the greatest hindrances to following Jesus as he calls us to. Now, fear in the biblical sense is a very broad word. It includes uh, being afraid of, of something or someone, but it also extends to this. It extends to holding someone at all, being controlled or mastered by people, worshiping people, putting your trust in or needing people. The fear of man can be summarized this way. If you're following in the note sheet, it's this. Simply put, we replace God with people. Instead of the biblical fear of the Lord, we fear others. Now, the fear of man goes by other names. When you're a teenager, it's called peer pressure, right? When we're older, it's called people pleasing or more recently, a codependency, right? And I think if we're honest, we could all say this morning that in some way we are affected in the decisions that we make by the fear of man. Here's some questions to gauge if this affects you. Do you struggle with peer pressure? Do you struggle with overcommitment? You can't say no, even though you know you should. Do you struggle with self-esteem? Like, is that a, a critical concern for you? Do you worry in life about being exposed as an imposter? Do you put a heavy weight on the opinions of others? Do you spend your life managing the expectations of others? Are you always second-guessing your decisions because you're afraid that you might look bad in the eyes of others? 
Do you lie? Do you tell those little white lies just to cover up the truth, to make yourself look better in the eyes of other people? Do you find yourself jealous of other people? Are you controlled by them or controlled by their possessions? Do you avoid people? Are you constantly concerned about how you look or how much you weigh? Do you uh, feel unappreciated at times and need people to notice you and uh, applaud you for what you're doing? Do you fish for compliments? You know what that is? Or you say, uh, just kind of bring up some questions so people can tell you how great you are. Do you show favoritism to those who increase your reputation? Do you feel good about yourself when you compare yourself to other people? Because even that shows the fear of man, right? Do you you think you've made it and feel good about yourself because you have more than others? If so, you are still defining yourself by other people and not by God. Now, if none of these descriptions point their finger at you, first of all, check your pulse, okay? Make sure you're alive today, all right? But let me mention just one more word, evangelism, right? Have you ever been too afraid to share your faith because you're afraid of what others might think of you? Proverbs 29, 25 says this, fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. So this fear of man, I want to say, is really a universal problem, and scripture is full of descriptions and teachings about it. And one of the dominant questions of scripture, again, is this, who will you fear? Who will you need and be controlled by? Because ultimately, here's the reality, what or who you need will control you. Fill that in. What or who you need will control you. But also say this, you fear him most whose approval you seek most. And so the question from Scripture again and again is, will you fear God or will you fear people? And Scripture gives us three basic reasons that we fear people, right? We Fear people because we think they can expose us or humiliate us. We, hear, we fear people because they can reject us. We fear others because we think they can attack us or hurt us or oppress us. But all of those reasons for the fear of man have one thing in common. They all see people as bigger. And when I say bigger, I mean more powerful and more significant than God. All of these fears say that people are ultimately more powerful than God, and because of this, we give people the power and the right to tell us what to feel and what to think and what to do. Again, what you fear and what you need will control you. My wife is a photographer, and so I've learned a a lot through the years about what makes a, a good picture. It's the right composition, it's an interesting subject, and of course it's the right lighting. But sometimes I just like pictures for how quickly they can convey a message. They say a picture is worth a thousand words. I have a picture for you here, we can show that picture. I don't know if you can see it very clearly, but it is a, a picture of a giant Buddha surrounded by scaffolding. And I remember when I, I first saw this picture, I said, well, how ironic is that? It is a broken, decaying idol, and yet broken, hurting people bow down before this broken idol, hoping that this broken idol can somehow fix their broken lives. And we do the same thing, don't we, right? So often we turn to broken things. Sure, you don't have a Buddha in your house, or maybe you do. I don't know where you're, you're coming from this morning, but chances are more than likely that your idol is parked in your garage at home, okay? I think if we're honest, we could all say we have those things which take the place of God in our lives, right? Um, We have those broken items 
that we look to to fill our broken hearts. But that, that's not where I'm going this morning because chances are you only desire those things because of the status or the attention that they bring from man. Sure, when we think of idols, we usually think of a Buddha or another man-made object. But I would submit to you that nine times out of ten people are actually our idol of choice. It's our spouse, our children, our friends, our, our pastors, right? Why do you fear them? What, you fear that they may expose you or humiliate you or you fear that they may reject you. It's because we've exalted them and perceive their power to be greater than God's. We look to them as having power to fill us with love and esteem and admiration and respect. And you say, wait a minute, Pastor, you're talking about idols here. I I get that my car or my house could be an idol, but my wife, my husband, uh, my friends? Well, truth is, like all idols, people are created things. They're not the creator. And therefore, they do not deserve our worship. But, but they're worshipped by us when? When we perceive that they have the power to give us something. We think that they can bless us. And so we as broken people often look to other broken people to fix us. But broken people cannot fix broken people. Broken people can't even fix themselves, right? To all you married couples out there, your spouse cannot fix you, okay? Some of you are thinking of ways to fix your spouse, okay? But your spouse cannot fix you especially for the newlyweds, as perfect as you think your spouse is today, okay, you will soon discover they're broken, okay? (laughs) They too are sinful people in need of a savior. Broken people cannot fix broken people. Broken people cannot fix themselves. That's the message of the gospel, isn't it? It's the message of one who was without sin. He was perfect in every way. He lived a guiltless, obedient life to die a guiltless, obedient death. It's about one who allowed his body to be broken so that we could be made whole. When we look to others to fix us and give us a sense of of self-worth, we set them up as idols. And can I just say, idolatry is the age-old strategy of the heart. What we do today is no different than what the Israelites did in the wilderness with the golden calf. When the Israelites had left Egypt, they fled to the desert, and in that place they felt very vulnerable. They they felt very needy. Even though they had just experienced the awesome power of God, they were afraid because they lacked control over their situation. And so what was their solution? It was to put an idol over the one true God. And in so doing, they opposed God and avoided him. They opposed God by trusting in their idol over God. They said, yeah, sure, God brought us out of Egypt, but how can we be sure that he's going to bless us out here? I mean, this God seemed to bless us with abundant crops in Egypt. We can't just let him go, right? And how can we be sure that he's going to bless our women with fertility out here? We better hold on to this fertility God, right? It was this idea, just in case God isn't enough, we better have a backup. And so they looked to these idols that they wanted or felt like they needed. And in the end, they wanted gods that they could control and manipulate. For surely one god could not keep pace with their desires. And so they they sought blessing. They sought satisfaction in something that they could control. They, they, They saw the awesome power of God. And frankly, it was pretty scary. I want to tell you, in the presence of a holy God, you feel pretty vulnerable, right? You feel pretty exposed. But look at how they dealt with that terror. They searched for a much tamer God and a golden calf. That certainly fits the bill. But what about you today? Is God really enough? 
You you see, I, I don't think we're much different than the Israelites today. In our unbelief, we often oppose God and we avoid him. We worship people. We look to them to somehow give us meaning and significance. But as in all idolatry, the idol that we choose to worship soon controls us. The object that we fear overpowers us. Although the power of people is insignificant in comparison to the power of God, I want to tell you this idol becomes huge and often rules our lives. It tells us what to wear and how to feel and what we should drive and where we should live. It tells us what we need to to be successful, right? It even tells us that we ought to put on a mask in front of other believers to act like we've got it all together when we know we're really struggling. It, It tells us we should be frightened to death if we ever have to get up on a stage in front of people, right, and say something. It's interesting, when you talk about fear, the number one fear is this, public speaking, you know that? Followed closely by number two, which is death, okay? That means most of you would rather be in the grave than where I am right now, right? I've shared this many times. One of my greatest fears as, as a young person was this, was public speaking, and yet somehow God has empowered me to do what I do today. It's all God. It's all God. And so often I have people ask me, like, how do you get up there and do that? Like, isn't that, like, terrifying? And, and I know sometimes on a, on a Sunday morning I, I can say some challenging things that may offend you. I, I never want to be offensive for the sake of being offensive. At the same time, I, I don't see my job as getting up here and making you feel comfortable each week, okay? I, I believe the word of God ought to stir us up a little, amen? It, it ought to challenge us a little bit. But from time to time, I had people say to me, Pastor, wow, you're brave for saying that. And I got to be honest today that I, I could possibly be the most frightened man in the room right now. Let me explain. Imagine someone walked up to me who was about five feet tall, 160 pounds, and that guy challenged me to a fight. But let's say right behind that guy is another guy. He's seven feet tall, 300 pounds, solid muscle, and he challenges me to a fight. And in that moment, I have a choice. I can either fight the little guy or I can fight the big man. Now, here's the thing. It doesn't matter whether I was afraid of the first guy or not. It doesn't matter even if I'm a coward. That's no longer a factor. You see, even being a coward, if I know I have to fight one of these guys, I'm going to jump on the little guy all day, right? I'm choosing the little guy. And understand this, between you and God, between man and God, you're the little guy. (laughs) It's relative. And and so in those moments of life, when it comes down to fighting you, it comes down to, to fighting against man and what mankind thinks, or fighting against him, I choose him every, I choose you every time, right? I'm gonna take you on. In in fact, I would choose every one of you all at the same time, right? Let's go. Because if, if, if all of you came against me together, it, it would not even match up to God's power. So if I have to choose a fight, I'm fighting you. If I have to choose a fight, I'm fighting man. And really understand, this has nothing to do with courage. It has everything to do with who God is. And, and here's something the church in America desperately needs to understand. You and I are not getting out of here without a fight. We're not getting out of this without fighting someone. And if we fear man more than we fear God, we will actually live our lives in opposition to God. We'll be fighting against the God of the universe. Man, if you're afraid of of being shunned for what you believe, 
If you're afraid of being silenced, dare I say canceled for standing up for truth in culture that says, man, everything is just relative, then you really fear man more than you fear God. Listen, church, the world is going mad around us, and we as Christians, we're just staying silent, right? We're, We're not speaking up. Why? So often it's the fear of man. I know today that there are those in this room that that you're dealing with the consequences of living under the fear of man. Maybe it was a compromise that you made in your life that still haunts you to this day. Maybe you're here and you're in debt up to your eyeballs because of all the things you felt like you needed to have to look a certain way in the eyes of others. It's the American way, right? To buy things we don't need with money we don't have, to impress people we don't know, and usually don't even like, right? Because in the end, we need people to think a certain way about us. That is the fear of man. But I want to tell you today, church, there is another way to live. So how do we break free from the fear of man? I want to give you just two points today. Two points today. How do we break free from the fear of man? Number one, we need to do this. We need to take people off of the throne in our lives. We need to take people off the throne. We need to take down our idols. And so often those are people in our lives, right? We need to put them in their proper place. We need to need people less and love people more. We need to need people less and love people more. You, you see, too often we view people as a means of, of meeting our perceived needs. I, you're you're going to give me my self-worth, right? Instead of viewing people as the recipients of the love that God calls us to pour out on others. When people are there to meet our needs, they become idols and we are prone to serve them as slaves. But when we see people not through the lens of, man, how can this person meet my needs, but rather, how can I love this person, right? How can I love this person even when it's difficult? Then we are freed from this idolatrous slavery, and we are freed up to glorify God and and, and truly satisfy our deepest needs. Again, broken people cannot fix broken people. The most loving thing that we can do for our nation and for our families, for our loved ones, for our friends, is to give God his proper place in our lives. And so in our interactions with them, we aren't always looking for something from them, but rather we have something to give to them. Can I just say today, some of you are crushing your spouse. Some of you are crushing your kids because you expect more from them than they could ever possibly give. In the end, they cannot bring ultimate fulfillment into your life, and to expect them to is to put a weight on them that they cannot bear. And so we break free from the fear of man by putting people in their proper place. As long as people are too big in your life, God will always be too small. There's a verse in Luke chapter 14 that's that's always kind of troubled me a little bit. It's a difficult verse, but it's about following Jesus, right? That's what we're talking about. Luke 14, 26 tells us this, that large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I still read that. I'm like, wow, really, right? i got to admit, as a kid, I never really got that. Why does Jesus say that? Why does he say to those who desire to follow him, why does he say this? Because he knows that our natural tendency is to fear man. He knows that our natural tendency, man, is to want to please father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and neighbors and coworkers. We want everyone's approval so bad, even to the point 
in which it often means disobeying God. Jesus knew this, that we look for and we crave the approval of man. He knew the power of the fear of man, and so he said to those who desired to follow him, are you sure? Are you sure you want to do this? Because some people are going to question you, and some people are going to reject you, and some people are going to persecute you, and it may even be those closest to you. And so unless you're prepared to put those people, to put their approval in the right place, you cannot be my disciple. He's saying there's no way you could be my disciple and still be preoccupied with getting everyone's approval all the time. And I would submit that as, as long as you live with the fear of man, you cannot truly love Jesus and you cannot truly love those around you. The fear of man causes us to always be preoccupied with what others think of us. And so we don't say the hard things, right, for the fear that they might reject us, right? We become so preoccupied with saving face around our neighbors and our coworkers that we do not share the message of the grace of Jesus Christ. And I have to ask, really, how loving is that, right? I want to tell you that when we put people and relationships in their proper place, God can take his rightful place in our lives. And so we deal with the fear of man by putting people in their proper place. And secondly, I would say this, we put ourselves and we put our own glory in the proper place. We live not for our glory, but ultimately for the glory of God. We become consumed with seeing God glorified, even if that means that I lose face among others. We, we become consumed with seeing him glorified, even if it's at the expense of my own glory. Psalm 8.3 says this, when I Consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? He's saying, what am I really in comparison with the glory of God? Why do we seek glory and honor? We talked about it a little bit last week, right? It's, it's because that's what we were made for. We were made for glory and honor. We were made to reflect the glory of God. God crowned us with glory. But, but the problem is when we look for glory outside of God or we let our glory get out of perspective, our desire for glory can trump God's glory in our lives. I remember a number of years ago, I was moving boxes around in my attic, and I found my high school yearbook. And, and what's the first thing you do when you get your yearbook? You look for your picture. Come on, let's be honest, right? You're like, where am I? Oh, there I am, right? And then you look through and you find all the places you are. You memorize those pages. I'm in there like three times, four times. That guy is in there ten times. You know he was on the yearbook committee, right? And he got himself in there, right? But that's why we buy the yearbook in the first place, so we can see us, right? Or maybe that cute girl or guy you want to draw the hearts around, right? Come on, you did it. I know you did um, Right, Because we want to see who we are in, in the yearbook. But let me say this. Some of us come to the word of God with that perspective. Like, what is in this for me? Right, God, give me a word. Give me a verse. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe God speaks very personally through his word. But if you only use scripture for those coffee cup verses that make you feel good about yourself, okay, you are misusing the word of God. God does not give us his word to satisfy us with pictures of ourselves, No, he gives us his word so that we can ultimately be satisfied with pictures of him and, and his glory, amen? 
John Piper says it this way. He says, when you become less preoccupied with yourself and more preoccupied with God, that's the key to your joy and freedom. God does not satisfy you by giving you great thoughts about yourself, but by filling you, I love this, filling you with a great awareness of him. Listen, if you look at Scripture honestly and what the Word of God says about us, it says that we're sinful. It says that we're needy. It speaks about our desperate situation. And if you want to be freed from the fear of man, you need to come to a place where you're not so preoccupied with your own glory, but rather you are filled, filled with an obsession that God would be glorified. Again, Jesus is like a perfect example. His life was all about glorifying the Father, and so he spoke the truth, even if it meant he would be unpopular, right? Even if it meant that he would be crucified. I'm sure today he would be silenced, be quiet, right? Listen, church, our nation is changing radically, and I can't help but ask, why aren't more Christians speaking up? Again, it's the fear of man. What will they say, right? Look at Jesus' charge uh, to the Jewish leaders in that time. He says this in John 5, 44. He says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Wow. What a question, right? How can you believe? And the answer is you can't, you, you can't right? Perhaps the most tragic outcome of the fear of man is when we have opportunity to testify about Christ, but we avoid that opportunity, right? We want to receive the glory from others, and so we're not concerned with the glory that comes from God and ultimately God being glorified. And here's a scary thought. We are often more concerned about looking stupid, that's the fear of man, than we are about acting sinfully, the fear of God. Let me say that again. We're often more concerned about looking stupid than we are about acting sinfully. John 12, 42 says this, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue. Do you hear what that verse is saying? It's saying there were those who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed that he was sent from God, but they were afraid to confess it. Why? Because of the fear of man. They, they knew, man, this is going to affect my standing in the synagogue, and, and no good Jew wants to lose his place in the synagogue. Now, I don't know about you, but I used to think that the, the Pharisees were just stubborn, like they just refused to believe. Maybe they needed some more explanation, but I mean, Christ certainly didn't meet their expectations, right, of what Messiah would bring. But here John tells us many of these authorities believed. In other words, they knew that Jesus was the Messiah, but they didn't confess it because they were afraid of what others would think. And John expects this next statement to shock his readers. It should shock us today, verse 43. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Wow. Here's what I fear today, church is that we have a church in the United States that loves the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That, that we, we want so badly everyone else's approval, right? And, and here's the thing today. If you look at the direction that Starbucks and Target are going, like if you look at the direction these organizations are going, it's usually a, a good indication of what direction not to go, okay? Uh, but so many churches, we're just gonna, we're gonna jump on board with that. Why? It's the fear of man. We gotta say the same thing. Listen, the world should never set the agenda for what the church should be speaking about, amen? 
The, the word of God is the only thing that should set the agenda for what the church is speaking about. And I believe this, man, if the church began to stand up and speak up, the insanity would have to stop. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're here today to say, Pastor, well, I just don't want to be seen as, as hateful. Listen, in a world of lies, the most loving thing that we can do is speak the truth. Speak it with grace, please. But speak the truth. To, to say, man, there's ultimately no satisfaction in living in a way that is contrary to God's plan. But, w- but what keeps us silent? What keeps us from truly following Jesus? It's the fear of man. And so I have to ask this today. Do you want to be freed from the fear of man today? I mean, do you honestly want to live as a follower of Christ? Are you tired of being fenced in by the values of others? Are you tired of people telling you what you need to say and do, what you need to get, right? What ultimately means success? Are you ready to lay down your own glory and begin to allow your life to be consumed with the glory of God? I want to close with one more scripture today, and then I'm going to call you to respond. The Holy Spirit's stirring in your heart today, and you say, I, I, I need a change. I need to step away from the fear of man. I need to be more about the glory of God. I want to read to you from John chapter 12, if you want to turn there. John chapter 12, in verse 20, it says this. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. And Jesus replied this way. He said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed But if it dies, it produces many seed. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Verse 27, now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour, Father, glorify thy name. And then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him, and Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit and not for mine. Would you stand with me today? I want you to understand what Jesus is saying here as we come to a close in the service. Jesus is saying here, I, I got to die. I have to be lifted up. He's referring to the cross. He's referring to his humiliation. I have to die so that you would receive life. But understand, you and I have to die in order to receive his life. Verse 27, now my soul is troubled. Again, Jesus is going to the cross. It's his time. It's his hour And in his hour, he's going to glorify the Father. As I said before, Jesus is our perfect model. He's our Savior. But I want you to look at him in this passage. And I want you to see how free he is right here from the fear of man. I mean, he knows what's ahead of him. He knows he's going to be rejected. He knows he's going to be humiliated. He knows he's going to be betrayed by a close friend. He's going to be 
denied by another. He's going to be falsely accused, falsely condemned, hung on a cross, and tortured so that God would ultimately be glorified. But I read that and I ask, why is he so free from the fear of man? And it's only because of this, because he is so consumed by the glory of God. And so he says, if I be lifted up, man, if I be placed on a cross, I will draw all men unto me. I want to ask this morning, church, do you want that passion in your life for the glory of God? I'll tell you what, there is a freedom when you can come to that place of saying, it's not about me. It's not about me and my glory. If I live for my glory, I remain only a seed alone. But if I die to my glory... If I die to my need for a claim, man, if, if I love my life, I will lose it. But if I hate living for my glory and my acclaim and I can set aside the fear of man, then I can become caught up. My life can be caught up in the glory of God. And then my life will produce much fruit. As we sing today, I want to invite you to respond. If you've lived your life, and you'd be honest this morning, man, I, I've lived my life so afraid of what others may think. I've lived my life dictated by the expectations and, and the demands of others. I still live my life just wanting everyone's uh, approval all the time. I want to tell you today, there is freedom. There is freedom available to you. You don't have to worry about what the person next to you might be thinking, okay? Don't let that have a grip on you today. If God is pressing on your heart, I want to invite you just to come to the altars today and just lay that down. Lay that thing down. We would love to just pray over you. We want to see God break the fear of man in your life so that you would ultimately be able to live for his glory. So as we sing, just move out from where you are. If you want to spend time at the altar this morning and just lay that down, just move as we sing.